0: Hey, John of Antioch, this John of Antioch, he was this short, wiry little guy. He had a large, bald head and sunken cheeks. There was nothing imposing about his appearance. But when John of Antioch opened his mouth to preach God's word, nations and kings trembled. His message was always powerful and uncompromising. History knows John of Antioch by nickname. Chrysostom which means golden-mouthed Chrysostom was one of the early church's greatest preachers but it was his bold and unbending preaching that got him arrested the roman emperor and empress they were offended by john's strong stand against sin he was called into the palace and he was ordered to cease his preaching if chrysostom refused he would be banished from the empire John's encounter with the emperor has become legendary. Standing there before the powerful ruler, John Chrysostom answered his threat. He said, Sire, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. The emperor snapped back, Then I will slay you. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then your treasures will be confiscated. Sire, My treasures are in heaven where none can break in and steal. Then I will drive you from man and you will have no friends left. John Chrysostom said, no, that you cannot do either. For I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Sadly, though, John was banished to the edges of the empire. His body gave out on the hard journey into exile. If you'd been alive at the time, you might have concluded that the emperor had won the showdown, that an evil man had been able to silence God's golden mouth. Chrysostom's martyrdom seemed to be a sad end to a glorious life. And yet God sees it differently. God always sees it differently. Psalm 116 tells us, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, You see, God even has a plan for persecution. Understand, God is in control of all things. And apparently, he sees a purpose for affliction. He subjects his kids to resistance training. He allows opposition in our lives. Your parents know the surest way to ruin your kid is to protect him or her from all things difficult. Shelter your kids completely and they'll never learn how to cope with life. Likewise, God knows that faith grows stronger when we get some pushback. In his book Life When Life is Hard, James McDonald he, he shares a helpful illustration. He refers to his basketball playing days. Apparently he played lots of round ball, and as a result, he had a lot of sprained ankles. He learned, though, how to he learned quickly how to treat a fresh sprain. James would grab a wastebasket, he would fill it with ice, and then he'd top it off with water. And then he'd stick his wounded ankle into the frigid water, and he'd leave it there. James writes that after about a minute or so in the ice, his foot would become crazy painful. But if he kept it in the cold for two minutes, he found that his recovery time would be cut in half. If he could hang on for two and a half minutes... He'd be playing again within the week. And if he could endure the cold for three minutes, and boy would it hurt, he would be walking on the ankle the next day. Hey, the longer the pain, the faster the healing. And this is what happens through the pain of persecution. You could say that affliction becomes accelerated discipleship. Oh, we learn more faster when the pressure's on. If you want to be Christ-like, hardship is the miracle grow. Faith develops faster when it's subjected to some pain. And yet this is tough for some of us to accept. We want to believe this just ain't so. Even those of us who know better will draw the wrong conclusions at times. Oh, we assume that the believer who's down and out, he must have sinned along the way. Or that the church that's struggling had to swerve from God's will at some point. If God were pleased, we would see His blessings in tangible ways. We think that the Christian should always come out on top. That the job opening should always go to the believer. That the employer who puts God first should always get the promotion. That the godly honest coach will win all his games. But that's not the way life pans out. For God has a plan for our affliction. In the first two chapters here of this letter, Paul writes of the Thessalonians in nothing but glowing terms. He recalls their work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. How they had turned from idols to the living God. He talks about how the word of God had sounded out from Thessalonica throughout all the surrounding region. That they had received the word of God which effectively works in those who believe. You see, this was a healthy, influential church. Yet, they still took it on the chin. You see, the enemies of the gospel play rough. And they played rough with this church. They piled on. They hit them out of bounds. They poked them in the eye like a gator linebacker. They took some cheap shots. I still remember that. After gathering up the new believers into this new church, Paul was able to remain in Thessalonica only for a short time, just three weeks. Hostile opposition had run him out of town. In one of his letters, John Chrysostom, old golden mouth himself, he wrote these words. He says, when you see the church scattered, suffering the most terrible trials, her most illustrious members persecuted and flogged." her leader carried away into exile. Don't only consider these events, but also the things that have resulted. The rewards, the recompense, the awards for the athlete who wins in the games and the prizes won in the contest. You see, Chrysostom reminds us that we only see the struggle. It's like predicting the winner after a tough third quarter. It ain't over till it's over. There's more game to be played. The prizes aren't awarded until the end of the contest. And this is what we need to remember in the midst of affliction. Hey, if the world hated our Lord and persecuted Jesus, don't be surprised when they do the same to his followers. This was true of Paul and of the Thessalonians, and it will even be true of us. Well, here in chapter 3, Paul is in a tough spot. He's discouraged and in need of a faith lift. Paul is also interacting with a church that's in a tough spot. The Thessalonians were under the gun. Paul wants their faith to survive. 1 Thessalonians is what I call the believer's survival kit. I mean, these verses contain help for Christians under fire. A person facing affliction needs threefold help. They need three things. They need a person. They need a post And they need a prayer. And when the world plays rough with you, when you take it on the chin, you also are going to need a caring person and a loving post and a passionate prayer. Well, Paul begins here in verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure, in essence, he's saying, we couldn't stand not knowing any longer. Now, remember, this was before the day of instant communication, before Twitter and Facebook and texting. You see, Paul had birthed this church that was now under attack and he'd been forced to leave it prematurely. He was longing now. He couldn't stand not knowing how they had fared. Imagine a new mom being separated from her baby. Now I don't know how it still happens. It's been a long time. But when Kathy birthed our last child, I remember the doc pulling Mac from the birth canal, plopped him up on mom's tummy, handed me the scissors to cut the cord, and then gave us a few moments with our son. Kathy cuddled the baby, and I snapped the pictures. Well, after a while, they rolled Kathy to her room while they rolled the baby off to get formally measured and checked out. And there was a bit of a wait. It wasn't long, though. Mac was back in our arms in no time. But what if there had been a delay? Oh, boy, Mom would have gotten antsy. Dad would have been pacing the floor. The longer the wait, the greater the tension. And this is what Paul experienced. He had birthed a baby, a baby church there in Thessalonica. He wanted to know what was happening to this church. He writes, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. You remember, when Paul left Thessalonica, he traveled to Berea. And then he went on to Athens, the Greek capital of Athens. This was idol world. There were as many idols in Athens as there were people. And in such a spiritually oppressive atmosphere, I'm sure Paul was glad to have Timothy around for some fellowship. Timothy was some needed reinforcement. Tim was a brother. He shared Paul's heart. The two were tied. Tim was a minister, he calls him. He was a humble servant. He shared Paul's style. Nothing flashy or haughty about Timothy. Just a roll-up-your-shirt-sleeves kind of a guy. And Tim was a laborer in the gospel. He shared Paul's mission. Hey, Timothy was going to be great, a great asset to Paul's ministry there in Athens. But the problem was Paul couldn't stand not knowing about that baby church back in Thessalonica. And so, in a beautiful, really unselfish gesture, Paul interrupts his plans for Athens in order to send his very best man back to check on that little group of believers in Thessalonica. He cared for the Thessalonians so much so that it cost him personally. You know, Dave Marini was a great blessing to our church. Many of you remember Dave. But God loves Tar Heels too. And so he sent Dave and Michelle to Chapel Hill, North Carolina to plan a fellowship. Kevin and Randy blessed us, but they were needed across the pond. I love Josh's worship, but there was a wounded church in Woodstock who needed Josh. Even this morning, it costs us here to have Pastor Zach up at Calvary 316. But always remember, God's plan reads go and never woe. He always is sending people out to do new works in new places. And if we love our neighbors, we cannot begrudge sending them the people we love. This was Paul's attitude. I'm sure Paul enjoyed hanging out with Timothy. But he put a friendship on hold for the good of the gospel. And I wish I saw more of this attitude in church. What I see though is that church folk tend to gravitate toward people they like other folks with common interests. But like Paul, we need to think of the greater good. If we don't, we'll become a clique, not a church. You see, the body of Christ suffers from ingrown conditions. Believers turn inward, and they leave no room for newcomers. Well, Paul and Timothy, they sacrifice some friendship in order to help the larger fellowship. You know, it's interesting to me. Whenever Paul heard of a church that was fighting against false doctrine, he responded to them with a letter. But when the problem was persecution, he sent them a leader, a person. Here he sends to them his sidekick, Timothy. Later, Paul will write two letters to the Thessalonians. We're reading his first. He wrote to fill in their doctrine and clear up the misunderstandings that existed. But before Paul responds with a correspondence, He first sends a person. He realizes that these new believers in Thessalonica, they need some flesh and blood. Understand, Christian ministry is always incarnational ministry. Jesus set the example. He set the pace. He was God incarnate, almighty God in human form. He was God in flesh and blood. God is spirit. But according to Hebrews 10 verse 5, the Son of God says, a body you have prepared for me. You see, God knew that to communicate with us, He'd have to do more than just write it on stone tablets. For us to grasp it, His Word would need to become visible and touchable and personal to us. And thus, the Word became flesh. The Almighty became one of us. God became a man. Kenny moved into the neighborhood. Reminds me of the little girl who was scared of thunderstorms. Her parents were tired of her running into their room and jumping in bed. Every time she heard a thunder crack and started to hear rain hitting the roof, they insisted that she stay in her own bed and not be afraid. In fact, her mother gave her a pep talk. She said, honey, God is with you. You should trust the Lord. He'll protect you. Well, the next night, a thunderstorm rolled in and At the first crack of thunder, the little girl was at the foot of mom and dad's bed. Her little voice was quivering, she said. Mommy, I know I'm supposed to trust God, but I need somebody with some skin on. And God knows us. He knows what we need. He knows that at times we need somebody with some skin on. That's why today, the church, you and I, what are we? We are the body of Christ. We are His arms and His hands and His feet. We are His mouthpiece. You are the only Bible some people will ever read. Hey, think about this in your own life. When you first came to Jesus, you probably knew very little Bible. In fact, when you tried to read, it was tough sledding. I mean, your theology and beliefs and standards were infantile at best. Yes, the Holy Spirit is our teacher, and we need to learn to hear the Spirit's still small voice, but for most of us, our first teacher was a pastor or a friend, somebody with skin on. You see, our spiritual sensitivities are slow to develop. You know, doctors say that a baby's vision is still maturing even after he or she is born. It takes several months for the baby's eyes to focus as clearly as an adult. The muscles around the eyes and the brain's processing has to mature. And the same is true with a spiritual newborn. When a person becomes a Christian, God opens spiritually blind eyes. We suddenly, we see our sin. We see God's love. We view ourselves and life differently. But we still need help from other believers until our vision has time to mature. You see, Paul will send a letter. But before he does, he sends a Timothy. The Thessalonians not only needed preaching and teaching, but they also needed a pastor, a mentor, a friend. They needed fellowship. They needed a person who could take them by the hand and help them apply the truth they were learning. Now, I'm convinced this is where the church so often fails in its mission. We become a clearinghouse for information without providing folks the opportunity to grapple with the truth. I mean, folks need to wrestle with things. They need to be challenged to work through the implications and make the application of the truth that they're learning. You know, it's one thing to hear a biblical principle and even know it intellectually. It's quite another thing to incorporate that truth in how I think and in how I live. I mean, what would this look like in my family What would this truth look like in my work situation? These are the questions we need to answer for ourselves. And the best way to get a picture is always through a person. Fellowship with other believers gives me a peek as to what this might look like in my marriage or in my life. I can anticipate the obstacles and the rewards. I'm not as fearful of the application. And I'm going to say it again. This is why every single body here at Calvary Chapel should be a part of a TBG group, a through-the-Bible group. Understand why I keep hammering down on this concept. You cannot read the New Testament without without walking away with the conclusion that Christianity is a communal experience. It is. It is. It's to be lived out in relation to other people, not in isolation. Hear me on this. To grow a Christian, it takes both biblical knowledge and genuine fellowship. If you haven't found a group to get involved in, I hope you will. You see, one without the other, knowledge without fellowship or fellowship without knowledge will be insufficient. It takes both to grow a Christian. If your faith is going to survive persecution... You need a Timothy. Notice verse 2. Paul describes the purpose of Tim's visit to Thessalonica. He says to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. And notice what comes first here. We need to be established before we get encouraged. If not, we can encourage someone down the wrong path. Let's say you like to fish. Let's say you're a big fisherman. In fact, you're such a big fisherman, you're always baiting a hook that you leave your poor wife at home and you neglect your kids and you even lay out of work so that you can fish. Well, you know what needs to happen. Somebody needs to come up and rebuke you. Hey, you need to stop fishing and care about your family. But you know what we will do? We'll get around that person and we'll say, Oh, brother, God loves you. Let me pray for the fishing today. Let me encourage you in your fishing. We don't need to encourage him in his fishing. We first need to pray that God will bring him home empty. We need to pray for some bumps in the road. We need to pray that he'll he'll go out and waste a lot of time fishing for nothing so he'll realize the error of his ways. You see, we need to get the person established in the right path before we encourage them down that path. Get established in the right direction. Then we can cheer you on. Thankfully, Paul didn't have this worry with the Thessalonians. They were on the right path. Timothy was sent to encourage and to steady them. He writes in verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. Timothy's job was to remind these new believers that affliction and hardship isn't some spiritual aberration. Or a sign that something's gone wrong. Oh no, to the contrary. Persecution is an indicator that you're on the right track. A true Christian can expect some stormy seas. Notice Paul's statement in verse 4. He says, we are appointed to afflictions. I'm sure your calendar's full of appointments. To get your hair cut. To see the doctor. And you got a few sales calls to make. And to meet your child's teacher. You got all these appointments. But I got to tell you. Every Christian also has an appointment with affliction. It reminds me of a man who died and went to heaven. The angel at the gate asked him if he'd done anything noble, if he'd done any righteous acts in his life. The man replied, well, I once tried to help out this little old lady. The angel said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, there was this biker, this hell's angel, this brute, this bully. He was beating up on this little old lady, and I stepped in. I kicked a guy in his shins. I told the lady to run for help. And then he even tried to punch him in the nose. The angel was so impressed. He said, wow, what an act of bravery. How long ago did this incident happen? The guy thought, and he said, about 20 seconds ago. (laughs) Hey, stand up for what's right, and you'll encounter some affliction. We all have an appointment with some persecution. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus promises us, in the world you will have tribulation. In Acts 14, Paul encouraged the churches of Galatia to continue in their faith. He says, For we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Later, Paul makes a promise to Timothy. I'm sure you know that the Bible is full of wonderful promises. I mean, we like to print them out, don't we? We like to print the verses out, tape them to our refrigerator, tape them to the mirror in the bathroom, so we'll see them every day and we can memorize them and we can quote them frequently. But 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 is probably not one of those verses. You see, here's a text that isn't what most of us would consider to be refrigerator material. And yet it is a biblical promise nonetheless. God promises Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Voice of the Martyrs is a watchdog group that tracks persecution against Christians all across the globe. They report that this past September 25th, a 17-year-old Somali teenager was beheaded by Muslim radicals because of his faith in Christ. In October, an Indonesian pastor was arrested and sentenced to three months in jail for his efforts to reach out to his community with the gospel of Christ. On September 19th, just this past year, a young Burmese girl was locked in her house and was told by her parents to choose between her faith and her family Recant your Christianity, or she would be shipped away to a remote village. The young girl escaped and ran away. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I could go on with these stories for days. We American Christians are so guilty of taking our freedom for granted. We don't realize that persecution against Christians is the single greatest human rights violation on this planet. Today, 200 million Christians in 60 countries are denied basic civil liberties for no other reason than their faith. Gospel for Asia estimates that 40,000 Christians a year are martyred for their faith. That's today. That's this day and age. That's 110 believers a day die for the sake of Christ. Did you know that means that during our service this morning, six followers of Jesus, your brothers and your sisters, will die because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. The freedom we have in America is the exception rather than the rule. Jesus promised we would be eternally blessed, but we would be in constant trouble. In fact, if persecution becomes as harsh and as common in our country as it is elsewhere in the world, I wonder how it would thin out our ranks. Have you ever thought about this? How would it affect you? I mean, if your allegiance to Jesus suddenly came at a heavy cost, would you remain as devoted? Would you remain as bold in your witness? I mean, this is Paul's concern for the Thessalonians here in verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Again, Paul is worried about the survival of their faith. He doesn't want them to give up and renounce Jesus. If that happened, he says that his efforts would have been for naught. Notice the implication here. It's not just enough to have faith to be saved. We need to continue in that faith. Paul is concerned that Satan will use this persecution as an opportunity to tempt or to stir up doubt in their hearts. You know, Satan often uses persecution Fear and pain to cloud our judgment. He often uses fear to twist our theology. You know, Scripture and God and life and commitment and relationships, they look very different through the fog of pain. You see, this is another reason we need a Timothy during tough times. A real flesh and blood friend can shake us out of our stupor and remind us of the truth. You see, all Christians grow bolder when they can feed off the faith of a friend. Remember, to save the Thessalonians, Paul sends him Timothy. And this begs an important question for us. Is there a Timothy or two in your life? I mean, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. But sometimes our continuance in the faith is supported by a Timothy that we can touch and see. Well, Paul sent the Thessalonians a person. But then they send him back a post. Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, we also to see you. Understand he's saying here that the help has flown both ways. The help has flowed from Paul to the Thessalonians, but now the help is flowing back from the Thessalonians to Paul. Timothy's news is encouraging Paul. You see, Paul's enemies had told vicious lies about him. They tried to discredit his ministry. And he was glad when Timothy told him that the Thessalonians, they didn't buy it, man. They had refused to listen. They had a good remembrance of Paul. Paul continues, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith, for now we live If you stand fast in the Lord. And let me use an internet term here and refer to Timothy's report as a post. He posted the news. It was a post that pumped new life into a discouraged Paul. You know, since saying goodbye to Timothy in Athens, Paul's ministry had been a grind. If you read Acts 17, his time in Athens yielded minimal results. When he moved on to Corinth, he discovered that the work was every bit as hard. I mean, the Greeks he witnessed to, they were tough nuts to crack. They were steeped in idolatry, and they were opposed to the idea of a resurrection. In Corinth, Paul was down for the count. Paul would have been toast if it hadn't have been for Timothy's post. The news that had come from the church in Thessalonica, that they were standing fast, that they were actually growing despite the persecution It recharged Paul's batteries. Listen to Paul's words. Now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Paul is concluding if it can happen in Thessalonica after just three weeks, it can happen in Corinth. Hey, I'm just getting started here. I can't give up now. Notice a simple post, some news, made all the difference in its recipient's perspective. Did you see the article In last week's news, the headline read, You may have 250 Facebook friends, but only two are close pals. Did you see this article? A Cornell University study reveals the average person today only has two close friends. Only two. My wife and you, man, and that's it. That's all I got. Two close friends. Did you know that's down from three in 1985? We're losing ground. We only had three in 1985. Now we only got two. Here's a line from the article. Even though social media helps us connect with more people, there are fewer people we lean on when it comes to intimate matters. You see, apparently, 140 characters in a tweet doesn't take the place of a couple of friends sitting down and sharing their hearts with each other. Never underestimate what it will do for your friend to hear from you. Let them know you care. Let them hear that you're okay. Tell them if you're doing well. Hey, nothing bolsters me more than to hear that I'm having an ongoing influence in another person's life. When Tim returned with the news, when he posted the news that these believers were progressing, it renewed Paul. It was a post that got him through a tough patch. Well, folks struggling with persecution, they need a person and a post, and then they need a prayer. And this was part of the help that flowed from Paul to the Thessalonians. He says in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake, because of our God, night and day, praying exceedingly. Notice this, the greatest service we can render to a persecuted Christian is to pray night and day. It's ironic But today has been labeled by many churches as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Let me encourage you today to take a moment, not just today, every day, but especially today. I hope we'll all take a moment and pray for those believers around the world who are being hassled and imprisoned and tortured. I read a quote this week from Gospel for Asia's founder, K.P. Johannan. K.P. writes, I often talk to people who have been beaten and tortured for their faith. They don't want sympathy or praise or even a way out of the difficult situation. They all have the same request. Please pray for me. And this is what Paul did. He prayed for the Thessalonians. He prayed that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. And here's the heart of a gracious pastor. Paul knows the church in Thessalonica isn't a perfect church. He knows its members aren't perfect Christians. They had holes in their faith. They had gaps in their understanding. There were concepts that they had yet to grasp. Paul wanted to complete what was lacking in their faith. But here's the point. Paul was sticking with them. He was praying for them. Paul would see them soon, face to face. They weren't forgotten. I hope you realize... The more you get to know me, the more more you'll find that's lacking. I'm also a guy with some holes. You can call me holy, but not in the way you think. I got some real holes in my life. And that's why I need you to stick with me. And you probably got some holes in your life, and that's why you need me to stick with you. We all need to pray for one another, don't we? And Paul shows us how, beginning in verse 11, he conveys a model prayer. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. You remember earlier in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul said that he wanted to visit the Thessalonians, but Satan hindered us. Here he prays for God to remove those satanic obstacles and direct his way to the believers there in Thessalonica. And then he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Paul tells us to pray for an increase. But Usually when we do that, you know what we pray for? Lord, increase my pay, or my promotion, or my vacation time. Paul tells us to pray that we will increase and abound in love for one another and even in love for this lost world. Don't pray for a bigger nest egg. Pray for a bigger heart. This is a common prayer of mine. I grew up around so many people who had a closed mind and a small heart. Over the years, I've prayed for an open mind and a big heart. I want to be big heart. I want to be a big grace guy. For you know I have received big grace. My God treats me with big grace. I want to be a big grace guy in how I treat others. And then Paul closes his prayer in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will all his saints. Notice that each chapter here in 1 Thessalonians, it ends with a verse about the return of Jesus. It ends with a verse about His second coming. In fact, you'll find that the New Testament speaks more about Jesus' second coming than nearly any other subject. Why is this? Well, like Paul, Jesus also left a baby church behind that was under attack. And he wants us to know that he hasn't forgotten us. That he's coming for us. One day he'll return and he'll right all wrongs. And he'll persecute our persecutors. But until then, he wants our faith to survive. And that's why we need a person and a post and a prayer. I hope you'll be a Timothy to someone else. I hope you'll seek a Timothy for your life. I hope you'll post your love and appreciation to the people you love. And then pray. I hope you'll pray for an increase in love. That love will increase and abound even as you pray for God's strength to those who need it. Well, there we have 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll tackle chapter 4 next time. Father, thank you for your word this morning and for your love for us. Lord, thank you for what's about to happen in these next few minutes. Lord, we still have some unfinished business. Lord, I pray that even right now, you'll work in people's hearts. Lord, I believe there's some folks this morning that you'd like to save. You'd like to forgive for all eternity. And if there is somebody here this morning, I've been doing this each Sunday morning as we've studied through 1 Thessalonians. If there's somebody here this morning who's never given their life to Jesus, but this morning you'd like to do so, You're tired of living under the guilt. You're tired of not knowing where you'll go if if you died today. You're tired of the uncertainty. And this morning, boy, wouldn't it be great if you just gave in and gave your life to Jesus today. You won't regret it. If there's somebody here this morning that would say, Pastor Sandy, I'd like for you to pray for me. I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want you just to stand up right where you are. Just stand up right now. There's somebody here. Great, that's wonderful. Anybody else that would say, "Hey, today's my day. I just want to. I just want to lay it down. I want to give my life to Jesus and deal with this today." Somebody else. Not going to drag it out. It's going to give. Great, man. That's great. Anybody else? Ten seconds and counting. Oh my! Don't don't put it off another day. Don't do that. Anybody else? Just stand up right now. We'll pray. Hey, while our heads are bowed, while you're praying for these these two that have stood, if you guys who are standing, if you'll just repeat after me, we'll we'll go through this prayer, and you just repeat after me, and we're going to ask God to forgive you of your sins, come into your heart, and today you're going to put your faith in Jesus, and you're going to walk out of here a new person. He guarantees that. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. Come now and wash away my sin. Come and live in my heart. I want to be the person you want me to be. Come and take over my life. I want to live for you from this day forward. Thank you, Jesus for being my Lord and my Savior. I give my life to you today. Forgive me and wash me clean. Make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen.